Greetings and welcome to the podcast. Uh, this is Bierkegaard, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, today is uh, the first day of school where I used to work, and it's uh, pretty common here in Pennsylvania to start school before Labor Day. I always liked school starting after Labor Day, although I understand the reason for it. Uh, get the kids out earlier uh, before it gets too hot out. This is uh, somewhat based on the agricultural calendar uh, to be after Labor Day because that would be after the harvest and those days no longer are pertinent for most of our most of our kids very few students working agriculture come from farms and all that kind of stuff so anyway best wishes to all the educators out there whatever you do if you work with kids and uh, whatever level you work at uh, best wishes for a good school year I know things are uh, things are challenging here in the United States right now there's a lot going on with uh, with kids in school and uh I ran the race. I don't miss it. I don't miss it at all. Uh, occasionally, I'll look fondly back on something that I did and something that something that uh, where I was able to help somebody. But I don't miss it, and I'm glad I left when I did. Knowing when to uh, when to move on is an important skill. We can all think about those athletes that hung around too long, uh, like Michael Jordan playing for the Washington uh, the Washington basketball team, the Washington Wizards. Uh, surprisingly, they used to be called the Washington Bullets, of all things, uh, which is uh, a name they changed, of course. Uh, it's kind of a kind of a strange name for a team. Uh, the Bullets uh, must have been because they were fast or something. Uh, but you know, Muhammad Ali stayed in the, stayed in the ring too long. Michael Jordan uh, was still a good player for uh, for the uh, Washington Wizards, uh, but he was nothing like his former self. Now he did take off that one or two years when he tried to become a professional baseball player. Uh, but we can just think about uh, Tom Brady came back and didn't have a great season. Could have gone out on, on top the year before winning the Super Bowl, uh, proving to everyone that he uh, was a big uh, part of the success of uh, the New England Patriots. Uh, it's not just the coaching. The coaching certainly helped, made him the kind of quarterback he uh, was to be. But um, Or aging stars in movies, you know, unless they're playing a, an age-appropriate role. Uh, that can be kind of sad sometimes when they're trying to hold on to something that's gone by. Uh, but the good thing about being into uh, books and literature is <clears throat> they're kind of ageless. Uh, many of uh, many authors have written great books as they've been older, and so you know you can write a book when you're young, I suppose, and it can be successful. Uh, but I think sometimes books require a bit of insight, and everybody has it, but it just takes time to build it. And Soren, uh, Soren wrote fairly young and passed away fairly young, of course, in his 40s. Uh, but I think with uh, the children of his parents, he, he lived the second longest. I think his older brother Peter lived longer than he did, of course. I say of course because I'm pretty sure about that. Um, but uh, I'm reading his biography right now. And, uh, man, that family went through a lot of loss. His, uh, his parents, his mom passed away. Um sisters passed away one of his brothers that had gone to america passed away he had a an older brother that had passed away when he was real young that was also named soren that was pretty common back in the day that um parents would name their children the same name again if uh, the younger one was born the older one had passed away they can often have the same name uh, so i think the older soren passed away when he's a baby that usually is what happened they didn't like wait until the kid was like five and then rename him. So uh, we shall say then the endeavor uh, to enjoy and uh, understand Job more clearly in his beautiful words, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
and I've kind of talked about this previously. There's a lot of pathos in these verses. Um, we shouldn't say because they're brief that there's not a lot of pain here. Sometimes the most painful things can be very, very brief and very, very short. Uh, it doesn't take a lot. Uh, or just importance in general. Uh, say like Gettysburg Address from uh, Lincoln was about a five-minute speech, but it's, it's a classic and it's going to be known as long as this world is in existence as uh, the perfect speech for the perfect time. Uh, to say something about that great tragedy in America. Um, but it was, it was brief. And the speaker that uh, Lincoln was paired with had talked for like an hour and a half or two hours or something crazy, which was very common for the day. But sometimes uh, the power of your words will go up the less you say. Um, I want to talk about something here when it says the Lord took away. I'm still struggling with Job, and I think a lot of people do. I have to admit it, though. I'm not finding a lot of edification in Job's story. It feels like God is uh, kind of just running Job through the ringer. Uh, it doesn't seem to be really purposeful. But Job is a teacher. Uh, Job is teaching us how to handle adversity. And this is adversity that he didn't deserve because he's called upright. And he's clearly a good man in terms of human terms, at least. Everybody's a sinner, but there's difference, differences on the human level between good people and bad people. We know non-Christians that act in very kind and generous ways in a lot of ways. And then we know some Christians that are nasty. And uh, C.S. Lewis makes a point, well, maybe that person would be even more nasty if they weren't a Christian. And maybe that good person would be even better. But this is kind of on the human plane. We compare ourselves to God, we come up short. And that's what the gospel is all about. I think that's the point of uh, the story, though, is Job is not just suffering for himself. He's suffering as an archetype for all those people that are to follow that will suffer without deserving it. Because uh, clearly he's righteous, and it's clear that Satan says, well, if you if you take away everything uh, that Job has, then he'll curse you to, to your face. He tells God that. So it's kind of like a wager. And uh, a lot of this is going on behind the scenes. Job doesn't know this. Job is just suffering. And he thinks God is punishing him because jo uh, because God thinks he's unrighteous. Uh, that's the kind of chief complaint that Job is saying, that God must uh, think I'm unrighteous to give me all these consequences. And his friends tend to echo that position. But that's not the case. It's very clear that Job is perceived as an upright man. And God is just running him through the ringer. Uh, he's having Satan do the work, but God gave the permission. So when Soren says the Lord gave and the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord, um, that is true. Uh, it's the Lord that took this, not, not, not Satan. Satan was God's agent. Satan is a lesser being. So we've talked about that previously, but I want to talk about Lord taking away. Uh, several years ago, I don't know, maybe five or six, I belonged to a church down in downtown Lancaster that had a, um, a somewhat of a part of the congregation, a part of the people that attended came from the local university, uh, Franklin Marshall. We also got some students from Millersville and perhaps other local colleges on, on and around Lancaster, in and around Lancaster. And uh, there was a person attending there who, uh, his name was Lu uh, Lucy, Lucy Kirkman. And she was from a, a country called Zimbabwe. Now, she was a white, a white young woman. Uh, so she uh, was from uh, what was, used to be called Rhodesia. 
uh, when she was a kid, it would have been called Rhodesia. It was actually a British colony and then became a kind of equivalent to like Canada, became its independent country, but it was uh, called Rhodesia. And it was basically white ruled like South Africa and even more white ruled like in, in, uh, in uh, Rhodesia at the time. Excuse me. Uh, the white minority was really small, uh, probably less than 10%, maybe 5%. And uh, they broke away from uh, being a colony and became a country. And they kind of did it against uh, Britain's wishes, England's wishes. And it was, uh, Rhodesia was kind of a pariah among the nations. And then there was a, an uprising of the, of the blacks with Robert Mugabe and other revolutionary leaders. And it became Zimbabwe and all that kind of stuff. So she was from there. And Franklin Marshall has done a good, good, uh, a good job in getting kids from all over the, the world and across the United States to attend who wouldn't normally come to um, come to Franklin Marshall in years past. Franklin Marshall was kind of a legacy university or college. It's not a university; it's college, and uh, was started by uh, by Ben Franklin, uh, and it was in Lancaster, and it was kind of part of the Dutch Reformed Church and all this kind of stuff. But um, uh, they do a good job in uh, helping kids with financial aid. It's not it's not a uh, it's not an Ivy League school, of course, but it's a, one step below. It's the, it's the kind of uh, college the kids come to that could have maybe gotten into an Ivy League if they if they hadn't been so incredibly uh, competitive. But you know, high credentials uh, come from generally pretty wealthy families, and up until maybe 15, 20 years ago, Franklin Marshall got a lot of legacy kids, which whose parents had gone to Franklin Marshall, or kids that. We're pretty well off and driving BMWs and kind of frat boys and that whole kind of subculture of just kind of privileged white kids. So they did a good job in kind of diversifying where they drew from. So Lucy was one of these kids and um, she came from uh, Zimbabwe and I talked to her at times about it. I didn't talk to her deeply. It's always a little bit awkward when you have an older guy uh, talking to a younger woman, whatever uh, it looks like. And whatever it is, it, it may be perceived as a little bit creepy or a little bit unusual. And I don't like to be sketchy, uh, but I was friendly and cordial with her, but I didn't know her well, real well. And this is about the Lord taking away. Uh, we got word last week that she had been killed in a car accident. And she was in her 20s uh, at this point, probably uh, 26, 27, 28, something like that. Uh, she had been kind of a... I don't know her major at, at Franklin Marshall, but she had gone to like the University of Arizona for her master's in fine arts uh, in, in writing. So she was a writer. And I got to see a lot of her writing online after she passed, or if I got word that she passed. And uh, again, caught, killed in a car accident. We're not sure. I'm not sure about the details. Didn't ask a lot of questions. But I did look a lot of a lot of her writing. And I, I was kind of saddened in the sense that I didn't know her real well. Her writing was very open and very revealing and had a lot of pain in it. Uh, she wrote about her parents divorcing. They had gone on some kind of train trip from uh, Zimbabwe or Rhodesia, whatever it was at the time when she was a kid. And she was a twin, so she had a twin sister. And they had gone for this exciting uh, but long train trip from uh, Zimbabwe to South Africa. I think it was Johannesburg. And her parents told her and her sister when they got there that they were breaking up. And so she wrote a, a lot about this in a really long essay that she, um, that she penned for a college class and how hard it was for her 
and how lonely it made her. And then I got to think about, you know, if she was from Zimbabwe, which she was, and she was here in America, she must have been lonely at times because she wrote about not really belonging in either culture because being white in Zimbabwe uh, put her as a distinct minority and she had changed as a result of coming to America, but she wasn't an American either. She had seen life from a much different perspective and she felt like she was kind of uh, a citizen that didn't belong in either country. And she wrote about this, and this is all public, it's out there on the internet, so I'm not revealing anything that's kind of exclusive to uh, maybe a conversation I'd had with her. Uh, yet it was awfully sad to read how hard it had been for her to be in college and how lonely she seemed to be and how uh, she was trying to find meaning in all of it. And, you know, it's just a reminder that we see the outward person and then there's the inward person, which is kind of the, the, the world that Soren writes a lot about. He writes about the inner person, the inner struggle, the inner uh, sense of who that person is before God and their, their desire to find meaning and to find love and to find acceptance and to make a difference and to live for something worth living for. And it all came out in her writing. And it was um, hard to read it because I felt like the person that I knew and the person that she she was, uh, all I had seen was the surface. And um, she had posted this essay in 2017, which is about six or seven years ago. Um, and it just reminded me of so much of just, we can't really know people until we really, really just sit down and listen. And reading what they write is a good way because people are often a lot more open about what they write than what they'll tell you. Uh, but she wrote a little poem called What If Tomorrow? And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I thought it was kind of beautiful in terms of the ending. She uh, was teaching some teenage boys how to draw. Uh, so she's an artist in addition to being a writer. She's a visual artist. And she was teaching high school uh, boys how to do that. So she was back in, uh, back in Zimbabwe. Not presumably, presumably she was working with black kids, and uh, she said something along the lines in the in the uh, in the essay that you you know you draw with your mind. You don't just draw with your hands. Uh, you draw and see with your mind. It's all about how you see things because your hand is only going to do what your what your eyes perceive and what your eyes see. And that's a good point. It's a little bit of a maximum or maximum maxim. Uh, not a maximum, maxim among artists is that you uh, that you draw with your mind and uh, not only with your hands. So just seeing life and absorbing life and being observant. And I think she was a very, very observant person. And another essay, that the one that was posted online from 2017 where she got into her family stuff a lot, this isn't the same essay. Um, she talked about sitting in a coffee shop and making eye contact. She was sitting alone and having coffee. It was raining, presumably in, in Lancaster, because it sounded like a kind of Lancaster scene. Um, and somebody was walking by a, a, a young man who was wearing a hoodie, and they kind of made eye, eye contact, and they looked at each other, but nothing came of it. He didn't come in and sit down and have coffee with her. But they made eye contact, and for a brief moment, they had like this community, because he was kind of alone. and going in a different direction and she was alone and feeling alone and uh, they kind of looked at each other and there was that connection and then things went the other way and they they <laughs> strangers in the night that kind of thing uh, so anyway she was talking about the possibility that could have been there and nothing materialized but for a brief shiny moment there was a connection 
Um, but she ended the essay that said something like this. Vision is everything, although it will perhaps not be realized as and when we want it. I am reminded of this with drawing two and the failures that are necessary for that something, for the, for the something. If it is not perfect, then at least it might be found, which is really the battle. If you're looking for perfection in this life, you won't get it. Now you can have a perfect sandwich, perhaps, or a per perfect cup of tea. But if you're looking for perfection as an attribute of your life experience, um, as Francis Schaeffer said, prepare to be disappointed because that's not going to happen. He said that in reference to relationships, uh, if you're expecting perfection, he said uh, get ready for nothing because that's what, what's going to happen because you're not going to get it and you won't find it. And by looking for it, you'll actually uh, not find it. You won't find that perfection. You'll always be disappointed. So he said expect nothing. So life is uh, very much of a weighing, a weighing act. You have to look at the good and the bad. And you look at the positives and the non-positives. And you try to maximize, obviously, the good things that are good and eliminate the things that are bad. But some amount of bad is just the way it is. And uh, Job speaks very powerfully about that. To submit to the Lord in silence and humility in this way is indeed also deserving of praise. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. The first thing here that halts deliberation is that Job said the Lord gave. Are these words not irrelevant to the occasion? Do they contain something extraneous to the event itself? If at one moment a man has lost everything he treasured and has lost the greatest treasure of all, perhaps the loss will overwhelm him in such a way that he does not even dare say it, even though in his innermost being he is conscious before God that he has lost everything, or he will uh, not let the crushing weight of the loss rest on his soul, but he will say, as it were, detach himself from it, and with deep emotion, the Lord took away. To submit to the Lord in silence and humility in this way is indeed also deserving of praise and emulation, and such a person would also save his soul in the struggle, even if he lost all joy. But Job, the moment the Lord took everything away, he did not first say the Lord took away. Um, we have to remember, for example, I'll just bring Lucy back here for a moment. And I, a friend of mine posted something online which is very pertinent to this observation. Is that Luth, Lucy was with us. Lucy Kirkman was a great human being. She's very passionate, very spiritual, very caring. And as a white person in, in Zimbabwe, she was very sensitive to the, fa the fact that the blacks had been oppressed and enslaved and uh, imprisoned and uh, treated as uh, treated awfully uh, she wasn't insensitive to that as a white person and the privilege that it conveyed to be white in Zimbabwe but she was with us and a friend of mine made a comment just it's just a reminder that we should love deeply and care about people while they're with us because you know we won't we won't be with each other forever and if we could just step back a bit and just think about how precious life is and how precious people are, maybe we would appreciate it more. I don't know. We, we, um, we sometimes really lack appreciation for things. So the Lord took away, but first of all, he said the Lord gave. The statement is brief, but its brevity is uh, it effectually points out what, is what it is supposed to point out, that Job's soul was not so squeezed into silent subjection to the sorrow, but that his heart first expanded in thankfulness that the um, that the first thing the loss of everything did was to make him thankful 
uh, to the Lord that he had given him all the blessings that he now took away from him. Uh, so thank you, Lord, for Lucy and for her life. Uh, I, hope she, I hope she was happy and I hope she had joy. Uh, some of her writings indicated a, a lot of loss and a lot of pain. And I hope she had found some sense of uh, solace in the midst of that. Um, but, you know, when we're in college, I think we come to terms with a lot of things that we had dealt with when we were children. So she had moved, hopefully, beyond some of that. Uh, it's hard to move on, but it's not unusual. You get to college and you start looking back a bit. And you start to come to terms with the things that you've been through. And it's often a hard and weighty thing to engage in. With him, it was not as Joseph prophesied that seven years of abundance would be totally forgotten in the seven years of leanness or lean years. And that goes back to that story that Joseph uh, put away all the grain because uh, uh, there was starvation and famine and he had prepared for it. So they said they had forgotten the seven years of prosperity. When you're hungry, that would be more common to do because what you're concerned about is putting food in your belly. And you might think about that last great meal that you had, but you're going to focus more on your hunger. His thankfulness, no doubt, was not the, not the same as those days that already seemed so far away when he received every good and every perfect gift. And that's from James from God's hand with thankfulness, but his thankfulness was nevertheless honest, just as honest as the idea of God's goodness that was now so vivid in his soul. Now he recalled everything the Lord had given him, had given some particular thing with perhaps even more thankfulness than he had received it. And it had uh, not become less beautiful because it had been taken away, uh, nor more beautiful, uh, but just was as beautiful as before. So uh, Soren's not saying to romanticize the past. He's saying that um, Job, Job looked backwards and saw the beauty for what it was. He didn't expand upon it or make it less. Beautiful because the Lord had given it <clears throat> and might seem more beautiful to him now was not the gift, but God's goodness. He recalled his prosperity. His eye rested again upon the rich pastures and followed the abundant herds. He recalled the joy of having seven sons and three daughters. Now there was no need to make an offering for them, but the offering of thankfulness for, for having had them. And uh, I can agree with the sentiment there, perhaps in a logical way, in a philosophical way, but emotionally I, I just don't know how how that can be something that, um, I mean, Job falls down on his knees and, and knees and worships the Lord, uh, you know, almost instantaneously. <clears throat> but there's truth there, and, but the emotions are very raw. And, and inserting myself in that situation, it, that, that would be a hard thing to do. He recalled those who perhaps still recollected with him, uh, recollected him with thankfulness the many he had instructed whose weary, weary hands he had strengthened whose trembling knees he had braced he recalled his days of glory when he was powerful and highly regarded among the people when the young withdrew out of respect for him when the old rose and remained standing I would suppose that's a pretty righteous dude if, if both parties the young and the old do that 
He uh, recalled with thankfulness that he had not uh, turned from the path of righteousness, that he had rescued the poor who lamented, and the fatherless who had no helper. And therefore, even at this moment, the blessing of the abandoned one was upon him. The blessings of the abandoned was upon him as before. The Lord gave, this is a short statement, but for Job, it said a great deal because Job's memory was not short and his thankfulness was not forgetful. With thankfulness uh, resting in his soul and quiet sadness, he said a gentle and friendly farewell to everything altogether. And in this farewell, everything vanished like a beautiful recollection. Indeed, it was as if it were not the Lord who took took it away, but Job who gave it back to him. Therefore, when Job said the Lord gave, his mind was well prepared to please God also with the next words, the Lord gave away. Uh, Perhaps there was something, uh, perhaps there was someone who on the day of sorrow also recalled that he had known happy days. Then his soul became even more impatient. If he had never known happiness, uh, then the pain would not have, would not have overwhelmed him. Uh, But what is pain but an idea that the person who knows nothing else does not have? But now it is precisely joy that has educated and developed him to perceive pain. Uh, So making the observation that if a person had good times before and now has bad times, they're going to understand the difference between the two, and it's going to cause uh, perhaps impatience and bitter, bitterness. Uh, then his joy became his own ruin. It was never lost, but only lacking, and in its lack, it tempted him more than ever before. What had been his eyes' delight, his eyes craved to see again, and his ingratitude punished him by inducing him to believe it even more beautiful than it had ever been. So that's that idea of like rose-colored glasses, romanticized, and we all know people that do that. The good old days, you know, you have old people say the good old days, but you you know, ask a black person or something and say, well, the good old days put us back in Jim Crow and segregation and slavery. So it's very dependent on people's selective memory of what the good old days were. It doesn't mean there weren't good elements back in the day, but if you'd grown up during the Depression and didn't have a lot to eat and... You know, you had brothers and sisters die for the lack of medical care. You know, you have a hard time of looking back on that uh, positively, if you're honest. But there's people that do that. They just uh, gloss over all the painful things and just look at back at the positive stuff. Uh, what had been his eyes' delight, his eyes craved to see again. And with his ingratitude punished him by inducing him to believe it to be more beautiful than it had ever been. What his soul had delighted in now it thirsted for and ingratitude punished him by picturing it to him as more delightful than it had ever been almost like a mirage i've been out hiking with friends and uh you know sometimes it's been extremely extremely hot this summer and we're out there walking on pathways that don't seem like they're ever going to end or uh roads that go up and up and up and up and we're in the in the hot sun with no wind and uh we have mirages of ice cold beer in front of us, uh, so this person's looking back, and it's almost like a mirage. 
and looking back at something that never really was, but uh, punished with him with fantasies that had never had any truth. Um, so it was more beautiful than it had ever been. What his soul had delighted in and now thirsted for and ingratitude punished him by picturing it to him as more delightful than it had ever been. What he once had been able to do, he now wanted to be able to do again, and ingratitude punished him with fantasies that had never had any truth. Uh, it's really important to see life clearly, and sometimes we need help to do that. We don't want to see things incompletely or incorrectly, so we need counsel. We need people to be with us. Another set of eyes, another set of ears. And then he condemned his soul living, <clears throat> and he starved it out. And the insatiable craving of the lack. Insatiable craving of the lack. Uh, that's an interesting little phrase there. The insatiable craving of the lack. Or there awakened in his soul a consuming passion that he had not, not en even enjoyed the happy days in the right way. Had su not sucked out all the sweetness of their voluptuous abundance. Voluptuous abundance. Another uh, another lovely phrase if only he might be granted one brief hour if only he might recover his former glory for a short time so that he might satiate himself with uh, happiness and thereby gain indifference to the pain uh, then he abandoned his soul to a burning restlessness he would not admit to himself whether the enjoyment he craved was worthy of a man whether he might not thank god that his soul had not been so frantic in the time of joy as it had now become. He refused to be dismayed by the thought that his craving was the occasion for his perdition. He refused to be concerned that the worm of craving that would not die in his soul was more wretched than all of his wretchedness. Uh, the worm of craving. Perhaps there was someone who in this moment of loss also recalled what he had possessed, but he presumptuously wanted to prevent the loss from becoming comprehensible to him. Even though it was lost, his defiant will was nevertheless able to retain it as it had not been lost. So this person's in denial, and that's a term that you hear bandied about when someone goes through a hard time or something happens of a negative nature. They hurt other people, the idea of denial. Instead of trying to bear the cross, uh, bear the loss, which is like bearing the cross, to bear the loss, he chose to waste his energies in, in, in impotent defiance and losing himself in a demented possession of what had been lost. Or in the same moment, he cravenly avoided any humble striving to reconcile himself to the loss. Then, forget, then forgetfulness opened it's abyss, not so much for the loss as for him. And he did not so much evade the loss and forgetfulness as he drew, threw himself away. Where he mendaciously tried to defraud the good once bestowed on him, as if it had never been splendid, had never made him happy. He thought he could strengthen his soul by wretched self-deceit. And there uh, were strength and falsehood or his soul became utterly wanton, and he convinced himself that life was not as hard as it was imagined to be, that its terribleness was not as described, and was not very difficult to bear if one please note began as if he had done with not finding it terrible, 
to become a person like that. Indeed, who would ever, who would even, who would ever finish if he were going to talk about what happens often enough and probably will be repeated often enough in this world? Would not he grow weary much sooner than would his passion for changing with ever new ingenuity? What had been explained and understood into a new illusion with which it would deceive itself. Look there, let us therefore uh, rather return to Job. On the day of sorrow, when everything was lost, he first of all thanked God who gave it, deceived neither God nor himself, and even though everything had been shaken and overthrown, he remained what he was from the beginning, honest and upright before God. He confessed that the Lord's blessing had rested mercifully upon him. He gave thanks for it, therefore it did not remain with him as a nagging memory. He confessed that the Lord had richly blessed his work beyond all measure, that he and uh, he gave thanks, therefore the memory did not remain as consuming restlessness. He did not conceal from himself that everything had been taken away from him. Therefore the Lord who had taken away it away remained in his upright soul. Um, he did not evade the thought that it was lost. Therefore, his soul remained quiet until the Lord's explanation came to him and found his mind like good earth, well co co uh, cultivated in passion. Now, the Lord responds to Job in such a way that he doesn't really explain Job's situation. Uh, God just uh, announces his, his majesty and his power and his, his right to do anything that he deems worth doing. Uh, that's that's the explanation. That's the explanation that Job gets. Uh, if we're looking for more of a micro story here, uh, in terms of some of the mechanisms of uh, what Job needed to go through this for, uh, lots of luck. It's not there. You might be able to read between the lines. Did not Job say something here? The Lord took away. Did not Job say something here that differed from uh, what was the truth? Did Job, uh, did Job not say something here that differed from what was the truth? Did he not use a remote expression for something that could be designated with more, a more immediate expression? The statement is short and designates the loss of everything. It is, uh, it is natural now for us to repeat it after him, inasmuch that it's, the saying itself has become a sacred proverb. But is it always just a natural? Just is it always just as natural for us to associate uh, Job's thinking with it, or was it the Sabaeans who raided his peaceful herds and cut down his servants? Uh, they were the ones that took away uh, those things. Did the messengers who brought the news of something else, or was it uh, not the lightning that consumed the sheep and the shepherds? Did the messengers who brought the news speak of something else, even though he called the lightning the fire of God? Was it not? A storm from the desert yonder that blew down the house and buried his children. Did the messenger mention any other perpetrator? Or did he mention anyone who had sent the stormy weather? Yet Job said the Lord took away. And at the very moment he received the message, he understood that it was the Lord who had taken away everything. So I would say that uh, at least um, at least Soren is completely honest about this. He's not... We get very uncomfortable with the Old Testament these days, and the New Testament for sure too, but the Old Testament has a lot of brutality in it, it has a lot of tragedy, and there's this idea that somehow the God of the Old Testament is much more hoarse than Jesus is, 
And that's not exactly true. Jesus says plenty of hard things. But there's a lot of violence in the Old Testament. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of murder. There's a lot of slaughter. A lot of uh, wars and battles and things. Uh, but Soren's not candy-coating it. He's not, he's not going back to the Old Testament and like Thomas Jefferson did with the New Testament, cutting out what he doesn't like. Uh, Soren is completely accurate. It's the Lord who took away. Now it's, let's, let's remove all the intermediate causes and get to the ultimate cause. The Lord took it away. <laughs> so we, we, we can be thankful that Soren didn't feel, uh, didn't feel under pressure to candy coat this, like I said, and to, uh, make the story a happy, clappy little story that ends well and, it does end well, but it ends well with pain and remembrance and uh, thankfulness and all these kind of mixed emotions. But it was the Lord who had taken away everything. Who informed Job of this, or was it a mark of his piety that he shifted everything over to the Lord in this way, or who authorized him to do this? Are we uh, not more devout, we who sometimes hesitate for a long time before speaking in this way? Perhaps there was someone in the world who lost everything, but he sat down to consider how it happened, but the whole thing remained inexplicable and obscure to him. His joy vanished as if it were a dream, and the trouble remained with him like a dream. But how had but how he had been ejected from the gloriousness of the one into the wretchedness of the other, he never did learn. It was not the Lord who had taken it away. It was an accident. Uh, so the Lord took Lucy away. Uh, he did. That's just the plain and simple story right then and there. We may ask why, but the Lord, the Lord uh, allowed that to happen. He had the means to stop it, and he didn't. We all have our day coming, though. Or he convinced himself that it was... Uh, was the deceit and cunning of people or their open aggression that had wrestled it from him, had wrested it from him, uh, just as the Sabaeans had cut down Job's herds and their keepers. Then his soul revolted against people. He thought that he was doing justice to God by not upbraiding him for it. And that's very common these days when people go through hard things. Is they, they'll say, well, it's not the Lord that's doing it. It's, uh, it's the devil or it's other people. But God has his purposes, and he doesn't feel quite compelled to explain to us often why things are the way they are. We are just to um, take it on faith. And it doesn't mean we're not allowed to have questions, and it doesn't mean we're not allowed to be sad and upset. Uh, we're not to be stoical in the face of life's tragedies. Jesus wept, and so can we. Uh, but a few quotes to conclude today's uh, podcast. On Once again, thanks for joining. Um, this is from uh, Dante's book, The Divine Comedy. You can see if you agree with this or not. There is no greater sorrow than to recall happiness in times of misery. And uh, Dante is re writing and referring to uh, people in hell. I don't know much about the Divine Comedy. I've been trying to read, read great works of literature like novels and things like that. I'm reading the Brothers Karamazov right now, but I've read like Moby Dick and Les Miserables, and I do it on my iPhone. I have it on my iPhone Kindle, and I just do a couple pages at a time. And I've tried to read the Brothers Karamazov probably 15 times before, to one degree or another, and uh, and the paper copy of it. And it's a very thick book, and uh, I'm finding like reading it on the Kindle is really really helpful because I can like hit the names and 
see when they first appeared in the story. There's all these Russian names that are very complicated. Uh, so I'm actually about 30% through the Brothers Karamazov, and I'll finish it probably in 2025 sometime. Uh, but I do a couple pages every day. <clears throat> but Dante wrote this, there's no greater sorrow than to recall happiness in times of misery. So he's referring specifically of those that are in hell looking backwards. And uh, it's very clear that Jesus talks about uh, the afterlife uh, that others who did not do the correct things in life have regret. Uh, it's over and over again he talks about that, uh, that there's some consciousness of having regrets about the previous life that was lived and all the good that one had and didn't appreciate and didn't, uh, you know, now is experiencing punishment because they were selfish and self-centered and all that kind of stuff. So there's three, uh, there's three uh, levels in the divine comedy. There's hell, there's purgatory, and it's heaven. So it's a Catholic book. The Catholics believe in purgatory, which is that halfway place of purification between heaven and hell. Um, so there's no greater sorrow than to recall happiness in times of misery. Now, Soren would say in terms of this life, that's not true, uh, that we should still look back and be thankful for the good that we had and not be bitter towards it. But in hell, <clears throat> I suppose and that you do look back with sorrow. I uh, hope not to uh, experience that, of course. I trust that the Lord is true to his word, that if you have faith that you shouldn't and you won't experience that. Uh, and one final thing is God says a lot of things that we that rub us the wrong way. And Job is, uh, is very abrasive. It's a very abrasive book. <clears throat> doesn't give us a lot of hope uh, that life will be easy doesn't give us a lot of hope that we'll get a lot of explanations sometimes to the tragedies that we go through. Sometimes there'll be reasons and sometimes the reasons are just not under our purview. And I apologize today for some reason. I really, my throat's really been scratchy and really, uh, really groggy. There's no particular reason for it, but I did go out for a run yesterday. <clears throat> but this, uh, I'm going to end with, with Augustine here. Again, I don't know if this is in City of God or uh, some other work. If you believe what you like in the Gospels, and I would just add parenthetically the Bible in general, and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe in, but yourself. And I would say that that's kind of uh, God's way of doing things. He says, this is the way it is. <laughs> take it or leave it. But if you take it, you have to take it all. You can't pick and choose. It's not a buffet. Or leave it and then bear the consequences. Uh, he's God. We're, uh, we're humanity. And his point is that um, he has a right to do it because he's God. And uh, he's just, and he's loving, and he's caring, but he's also very demanding. So I thought that was a good verse and a good quote to end on. If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe in but yourself. And uh, we're not worthy uh, to have that level of belief in. Uh, so we will conclude on that today. Amen.